Welcome to Do Not Listen to This Podcast, and I have a very interesting guest today who we're going to talk about leadership and creativity on this episode. Why don't you introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, my name is Chris Ferguson. Um, I'm from Toronto, Canada, and I've spent my career in a justice administration, areas like consumer protection enforcement, courts administration, legal aid, things like that, That's as an right. executive and as a, as a organizer. That's and, awesome. Uh, yeah, and as my sidebar, because it's important to me, I do, I've always done a lot of volunteer work uh, in adult literacy, English as a second language. And most recently, I've, I've been taken on as a, as a, a coach and mentor for uh, cancer patients at Princess Margaret that's, Hospital here in Toronto. That's awesome. Well, I, I would like to remind everybody, um, thanks for supporting Do Not Listen to This Podcast. Uh, all your half of your donations go to feeding stray cats and dogs. We've we've gotten into the thousands now, so we really appreciate that. Let's just jump into the interview. By the way, the stray cats was a great band. Loved yeah, them. They were always great. Loved them. They were they were great. They were very good. <laughs> I was always surprised there wasn't a stray dogs band. Um, I know. There's you know. Exactly. Uh, maybe if they, maybe maybe there should be now that you know that that the, that the term dog has been popularized through hip hop and everything. Maybe that's uh, maybe you better get a jump on that, exactly. my friend. Exactly. The stray dogs, D A W G. Exactly. So let's <laughs> let's talk a little bit about what your what your take on leadership is, because I always find the topic of leadership quite interesting, especially mm-hmm. when I'm working with clients. Because what I always explain to clients is that there's no proven one way of leadership that works right you can have you can have the worst leader in the world and that can be high highly effective and you can have the best leader in the world and it can be highly ineffective right the all the data that that we work with as far as kind of doing any kind of leadership change or stuff like that tends to be focused on followers because that data is really there that that's solid that that is clear there's you know four right. kind of categories of people there's one that you got to get the hell out of the group as soon as possible you know yeah. it's very clear so so what's your just give me your take on leadership and 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 what you think about it and how you got into it and why um, uh, and why you wanted to pick it as a topic to chat about well i think you know i, I it it's for me, leadership was about modeling uh, and mentoring and motivating, sort of the three M's gotcha. of, of leadership, right? Modeling the behavior that I wanted to encourage or that the organization wanted to encourage, being right. there to mentor and support and help people, and then uh, motivating them. And, you know, you've touched on an important thing because um, no transmitter, no leader is any good if his or her leadership skills and and style and everything aren't eventually tailored or adapted to the kind of followers that they have it's like you know being tuned to the right frequency or even the other day other people in my house were having difficulties picking up the wi-fi signal because they were using a certain type of uh, device i don't want to name company names Mm -hmm. but the company told them oh well we've just done an upgrade that made our devices a little you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's no good for me transmitting perfect messages and being awesome if the pay- people following me don't recognize awesomeness the same way I do. That's right. And, and also, too, I think, I, mean, I don't know if you, you th- if you disagree with anything I say, feel free to, to jump in. I, it doesn't. Oh, I will. I like to do it. Um, I think leaderships, one of the biggest mistakes I see with leaders is that they tend to be talking to themselves. Yes. 
Absolutely. They're, they're doing, they're assuming that what would motivate them yes. will motivate others. And you see this in all human relationships. I mean, yeah. my God, you're in your marriage. You think that, that my God, I take out the trash every week. How come she doesn't know I love her? Because her love language, her love language isn't about taking out the trash. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's not, that's something that should be happening anyway. That's not you shouldn't be getting any points for that, right? Well, uh, exactly. Although if I did take out the trash, it's so rare that I might get a point or two. Yeah, there you go. That's right. <laughs> so, how did you get into leadership? You know, um, I, I I I got into it by almost by accident. Okay. You know, it, it's that I worked in organizations where executives felt they saw leadership potential. Okay. And I was at first a little skeptical because I don't associate technical skills, like the kind of skills I had in, in legal writing and in mm-hmm. policy writing and in analysis. I don't see that as necessarily rele- relevant to leadership. Mm. But what one of my early mentors saw was self-discipline. Sure. And, and good communication strategies. And he, he said, you know, if you could, you, and, and a bit of a teaching gene. Sure. And he said, those three things create a bit of a skill base that you can uh, uh, develop into being an effective leader. Mm-hmm. And then he drew, drew me a little chart that showed the influence I could have just working solo, being yes. me. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't zero. Right. It was right. a little chunk. Right. Here's a bunch of things you can. And here's the huge circle of things you can accomplish if you can harness good teams. Right. Yeah, right? I, really, first, I do think. Yeah, I think you you nailed it right there is a big uh, you know a, a little golden nugget for people that I, I don't want to slip by. It's leadership is not about the leader; it's about that leader's ability to build a team. That's right. That does something more effective and efficient than any one individual in that group could do. That's right. To make it a sum of its parts. That's yes. so an essential part of leadership is recognizing the mix you have and how to optimize their working together. Right. And, and even every, it's even, unfortunately, I guess it's even a little more complicated because some teams need to be more integrated than others. I've had right. teams where people had such discrete uh, responsibilities that their interactions amongst each other weren't that significant. And that's right. ones, and then I, I could pick and choose my leadership style to a great degree I was being five different leaders in the same day from each of my different reports. Well, that's other right. Teams, that's right. right? But other, teams, other teams had to be more coherent. Right. And that's where the skills of being able to ameliorate differences, mediate, uh, referee, and occasionally even enforce a little bit, you know, right. came to the fore. I'm a gritty, I'm a bit of, I, I believe in a bit of gritty leadership from time to time too, by the way, I don't have a, rose-colored glasses about about this at all i think it's critical i mean i think if 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 you reach a certain age in business and i don't know what this age would be right but for me i was fortunate it was early on if you don't understand that conflict and chaos yeah are critical they're 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 critical for growth Um, there's so much uh time wasted in my opinion on trying to get people um out of their comfort zones, right? It's yeah. like, okay, well, let's, let's, get, let's get this group out of the comfort zone. Well, wait a second, the group isn't gonna function out of the comfort zone. So, well, let's maximize the comfort zone and then that will automatically get everybody out of their comfort zones because they'll see, right. oh, I can do so much more. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. That's a key, a key task in the leader and in the mentor too, is to actually help expand either the individuals or the group's comfort zone. 
I, right? I, I, yeah, and you bring up a word, mentor, that I like to talk about a little bit because I think it changed, and I think it changed just a little bit. Um, I'll be 58. I think it changed just a little bit. I'll be 58 in May, and I think it just changed a little bit. Mentorship changed a little bit, maybe about, oh, I'd say in my, in my 20s. Okay, right? yeah. Where mentorship really was people in business, identifying your talent and skill set, being younger and lifting you up and kind of bringing, guiding you through the process. Yes. And then there was a generation that didn't want to have any of that. Right. That said, no, you know what? I don't, I don't need you to lift me up. I'll just do it myself. And that's right. where it all kind of started to fall apart because um, mentorship then shifted into coaching and you pay me, whereas mentorship right. was all free. And, yeah. you know, it was basically, you know, a retirement account uh, idea for the person who was doing it. It's like, I'll take yeah. care of these people, build them up, and they'll take care of me. When, and yeah. it just shifted. So I think, uh, talk a little bit about how you view mentorship and, 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 and where you see it at is at now. Uh, I agree with you. I mean, I think there was a, a cultural shift about how these things are seen. And there's much, a lot of people who think they're being mentors are in fact just coaching, That's which right. to me is about a little bit more about the day-to-day -day tactical a strategic approach, not so much to your career, but to to tasks at hand. How can I get you to be better yeah. at, say, uh, at customer service or managing? Sure. How can I get you to be better? See, most of the people I mentor now are mid-career managers, directors, people in their 40s and, 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 and even 50s, because Ooh, I've gotten to the uh, stage of decrepitude where to me, a 40-year-old is a young person, right? Well, yeah. So, so. The, well, that's interesting, <laughs> right? So the mentorship there at that point, that those are people that really haven't structured their exit plans. Some of that is, but although in their 40s, uh, what I'm helping people to do as a, an actual mentor, sure. uh, as opposed to a coach, is to help them prepare for liftoff into executive ranks. Yeah, or into right. a more advanced, right, right? The transition, say, between being a, a practicing lawyer and a judge, or the transition from being a manager of a small team to being director of a larger branch or department. Those are the kind of people I'm what's, dealing with. And sometimes what I'm doing in my mentoring and coaching is addressing some of the psychological difficulties some people uh, people have encountered if they feel they're stalled out at age 43, age yeah, 45, really amazing, and something's right? not working. That, and, yeah. and especially if, if that's something that's not working, it's something that used to work for them. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's right. Everybody forgets that every 10 years, what <laughs> you change quite dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. And what was working for you, what, why those things aren't working for you is that they shouldn't be. They're not going to serve you in right. the five to 10 years. That's right. If you're a person with tons of potential at age 45 yeah, uh, and it's all about your potential, uh, something's gone wrong. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There has to be, have been some kind of track record. How are we going to build on this? Or uh, for people that feel that maybe the fit that they thought was okay for the last 15 years isn't so much anymore for a bunch of reasons. How do we yeah. transition yeah, from one right. career stream into another? That's right. I mean, one of the most successful mentoring experiences I had recently was helping a person make the decision to leave the organization they were in and even the career they were in and start something fresh. They had, they had the capital and they yeah. had a network yeah. and they're much happier a year later than they were a year ago. Isn't that like the greatest Thing, like the the comp the emotional compensation in that moment yeah. when uh when you really really see somebody get it yeah absolutely and when that light goes on it's just a it's a wonderful feeling we all bathe in it you yeah. know the light and the warmth and uh, for me also i uh, 
call me sentimental, but when I see somebody's sense of sort of despair or 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 or, or depression lift, right? Because suddenly they can see their way to a a a, a, a better place, right? And that's great. There's nothing like hope as an energizer. Yeah, the the uh, uh, I'm constantly amazed at how um, how many people out there are are depressed. Oh. It's it's a it's rampant, and you can count me in. I've been diagnosed with clinical depression. So before. so that so let's talk about that a little bit, and and then also let's chat a little bit about creativity too. But I think clinical depression is yeah. different is much different than the kind of depression that I might run into is just a you know you know like right like I didn't have a good shot on the yeah. golf course yesterday. Yeah, well, I see that as situational depression. <laughs> that's, or the, that's right, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So why don't you explain, because I think a lot of people don't get this. Why don't you explain what clinical depression is? Well, and even more importantly, what it is not. Okay, so what it is not, let's start there, because that's, that's the easiest. What is not is being upset or downcast at some misfortune or setback right. where there's a real link between an, an, an actual event Right. And and uh, and your mood. Right. So, yeah, you, you, you sucked on the golf course yesterday. You don't feel good about it, especially if, right. you know, golf's important to you right. or, or, you know, uh, you, you, you just discovered that your wife's been seeing somebody else. That did not happen to me, but right. I can see how that would be. But it has happened to people I know. And that's very depressing. Right. Clinical depression is where the low mood and the uh, and, and all, all, all the all the symptoms are not related or are disproportionate mm-hmm. to something that's going on in your life. This is just my personal definition mm-hmm. of it. Sure. That even if you have had a trauma, right. um, the effect is lasting longer than, it than experience would tell your medical practitioners is reasonable right. or, or, or the average. So in my case, I've been, you know, I've been through this mill a couple of times. The second one is the most illustrative that I'm telling you. I went through two years of cancer treatments for a stage four right. uh, cancer and it was rough chemo, radiotherapy. Yeah, that, that's, not, that's not fun. I haven't had. Right. Yeah. So fun. during the treatment period, being depressed is normal. Well, you should it's be, tough, right? Yeah, that right? Is, <laughs> yeah. Well, yes and no. I, I was on a roller coaster because I'm a okay. scrapper. And there were times when I felt great because I'm right. fighting this thing. I'm beating it back. Sure, sure. And, and this is the thing was, I had a better mood during the treatment at, than, than when I got, than when I sank in depression afterwards. Oh. Because there was a letdown when the treatments were finished and we knew they were pretty much successful. There was a letdown. Right. And what I didn't realize was I had a bit of, maybe post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. I had had radiation. Uh, my cancer was uh, neck and throat. Mm, so okay. radiation had hit my brainstem pretty hard and that gotcha. can affect mood as well. Gotcha. I've been in all kinds of drugs, like a cocktail, if you wouldn't believe. Sure. Right. And I'd lost uh, 50 pounds, which was about maybe 30 pounds more than I needed to. Gotcha. And I, uh, my appearance was affected by radiation sores and, and, sure. and an outbreak uh, from, from, from the chemo. So it was devastating. And I had been at, at, off the job for a couple of years and, and the job gotcha. was a big, big part of life and personal satisfaction for me and right. just, you know, fear and all that stuff. Right. There's a point at which that we realized that my mental state wasn't recovering perhaps the way it should. Gotcha. And I started having certain symptoms, you know, uh, uh, a lack of interest in anything, mm-hmm. a sense of, of despair, 
su uh, thoughts of suicide, thoughts that I was useless up to anybody. And, you know, one of the uh, a key indicator for suicidality is is a feeling that a person has, particularly this is particularly true with men. I'm no longer useful to anybody and everybody would be better off if I just got out of the way. Yeah, it's always I started thinking as... things like, oh, my finances are in order. Nobody's going to nobody's going to be hurt by this because my finances are in order. They're all going to be just fine. They don't need me anymore. I'm like a yeah. salmon that sw swam upstream and my my purpose has been fulfilled. So why not just check out? Yeah. I mean, when I uh, my connection to suicides were growing up up until about 25, I think I went to maybe a total of 30 funerals, right? Yeah. And only wow. two of them, only two of them were for people that were like plus 60. I mean, almost all of them were 30 under or my age yeah. and, and almost all of them were suicides. And um, right. so I thought that was normal. It wasn't until, until I actually got sober and then found yeah. out that that wasn't normal. Right. That, that, yeah. that is a lot. Right. And so yeah. I, I really kind of, um, you know, tried to do whatever I could do to help people that had any yeah. kind of suicidal tendencies because of all those people that I had that were friends that just didn't make it, you know, for whatever yeah. reason. So one of the things I learned twice, once in my twenties and then again in my fifties was that uh, medication isn't necessarily a, a uh, permanent thing. Right. Some people are afraid of being on meds and people would uh, say, are you off your meds as a way right. of saying, are you know, you're acting crazy. And uh, when some people who knew about my condition would say that to me, I knew they were trying to pull me down. Sure. Yeah, right? yeah, that's right. That's you right. Know, I, I, that's I'm right. making a tough decision. I'm trying to do my leadership thing. And, and somebody pointedly says, are you off your meds? Yeah. And on one occasion, I said, no, as a matter of fact, I'm not. I have a little uh, uh, pill box that reminds me to take them every morning. And I do. Yeah. But what I want to say is that it, that's not necessarily a permanent thing. Right. I learned, you know, I was so lucky. I stumbled across a newspaper article in a local paper about a guy talking about his journey with depression. And he'd said, mm -hmm. you know, I only needed the meds for six months and they would made such a difference. Don't be re necessarily reluctant. Yeah, to no, I, I think that's the thing. You know, a lot of people, you know, um, you know, struggle with that. And I think you're right. I think that um, what you don't want is to become dependent on the drug. Right. Exactly. Um, but but you might need to be interdependent for a small period of time just to get yes. from A to B. Uh, I think, you know, it's about redressing some balances in the brain. I took sure. I took I took a medication that improves serotonin levels in the brain. Gotcha. Yeah. And maybe it was it might have been easier for me than for some people because I'd been through that cancer mill. I was well primed for any biochemical explanation from yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's so much crap circulating in my you body. It, yeah, yeah, you already, knew it. Well, you, know, you, knew, you knew it. Yeah. You know, I've already taken chemo uh, for the cancer. It's not that huge a leap to take a little something, something for the depression, right? right that's right. Not hard to believe, especially with the radiation having gone through my head. It was not hard right. to believe that I was really healing some kind of biomechanical damage. Yeah. No, and you know, I think a lot of times with a lot of the depression stuff, it's like, some of the traumas of life finally catch up with people. Yeah. Like they, they're not, I was fortunate. I didn't have the opportunity not to not deal with the traumas that were happening in my life. Right. Yeah. So I didn't have that benefit of like letting it pile up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. jumping from one trauma to the next trauma to there the next go. trauma. Well, that's the thing, right? And I think yeah. that's true with people. They never get the opportunity to clean house or, or yeah. deal with one thing because they're immediately on to the next. Yeah. 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 This, this, 
But, you know, looping back a little bit to the leadership and mentorship, I mean, my experiences with both cancer and with mental health issues made me more empathetic leader. Absolutely. That's right. That's the thing is that you realize that, you know, everybody that you're working with as a leader and yourself included, you're going to have downtimes and you're going to have uptimes. Yeah. And it really is just kind of, you know, being there for the people in the downtime, not just really not telling them what to do, just being there. Yeah. You know? But, you know, with all the, all the stigma about mental health, depression is actually kind of the elite disease. You can get books about how Churchill and Lincoln and people like that. And in Canada, our yeah. Prime Minister Mackenzie King had depression, but it made them more empathetic and maybe more, uh, right. and a, but, a, but a, a paradoxically less sentimental about opponents. Yeah. Like Churchill recognized the enemy Right. In part because he didn't have any rose colored glasses about how low people could go. Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, so but and I, I, I am mindful of that um, because I think it's a lot different if you've got an anxiety disorder. I think there's a real stigma, especially for men, about being called anxious yeah. or having, you know, fear, anything to do with fear. So it's funny because yeah. I, I, you know, I grew up having panic attacks all the time and and, and I, I remember the, the weirdest panic attack for me was when I was on stage acting and I loved acting. And then, and then the, the last time, the last time I had a, a, a major panic attack, um, I, I was talking to my therapist about it and it was happening while I was driving. Right. Oh dear. Okay. And so, and, and it literally, I grabbed the wheel, like I was giving birth to a baby. And I love driving and I was going over a bridge and I just, I was terrified. And it was like not a giant bridge. Right. Yeah. Um, And it took a long time. It just was, it was, it was debilitating. And so, you know, I got on the phone with him the next day and and we started talking about it. And he said, you know, Roger, the funny thing about panic attacks is that you can't have them unless you're doing something that you're comfortable doing. Yeah. Your body, your, your body can't go into panic unless it feels safe. So you love driving. So that's when, you know, that's when you that, hit. That's when you can, you, you, that's when it yeah. can happen. And I said, and yeah. I said to him, I said, well, I got to tell you something of all the psychological stuff we've had to deal with, with myself, that's the most fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, just, bizarre. that's just not fair that a yeah. panic attack happens when you're doing something that you love. Yeah, no, I hear you because I had one once while I was out on the lake fishing. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't that far offshore. Yeah, There's nothing you love, dangerous. Because you love fishing, right? Yeah, because you're still- <laughs> uh, But I mean, I, I'll never forget it. What was happening was I was driving and then all of a sudden I could see all the lanes. Yeah. Like I could see, yeah. it wasn't just one lane. I could see all 12 lanes. Yeah. And it became overwhelming yeah. of, a, of like, you know, what, you know it's, it, it's an awareness thing, but- that's it's really interesting but i think that it's confusing i know and that's counterintuitive for people when i when i say i've had a a panic attack ahead of a big speech or media thing people will just assume it's the fear of public speaking because that's for most people they're afraid of but for me no i I was very comfortable in fact when when that happened i I mean i couldn't have been better prepared and i was relaxed right and here's the thing roger the panic attack ended when we started the interview as soon as I started talking to the interviewer, yeah, I, I had to focus on on the, getting the message out. Yeah, there was no way out of it unless yeah. I wanted to leave dead air on national TV. Yeah, so yeah. we got through it. But the, and then as soon as it was over, I go back, I go out of the studio, right. and I had to really sit down and collect myself. And it was yeah. completely unrelated to the actual event. Well, yeah, because the you know the other thing too is you you, you stop breathing, and so yeah. you, you're not you're yeah. it's like, 
it's yeah. it's it's very interesting um and breathing is pretty important the audience should remember that and i'm only being partially facetious because um if, if folks want to know a few of the things that help me cope with what i consider to be a um a chronic condition which is a depression sure breathing properly is actually one of those things that's it's not critical. it's not trite it's not, it's, 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 no no it's critical it's yeah. it's why doing i mean doing um intense types of yoga are, are very helpful for that because it teaches yeah. you how to breathe and stay mindful of yeah. your breath and all that stuff i i and just to kind of go back to the, the thing of mental health i i do think we're in a phase now where uh, not today but i'd say within our lifetime what's left of it we're, we're older um yeah. but within the next 30 40 50 years it's not going to be stigmatized you're, no, gonna, I, you you're know, gonna if, if, if you don't have a mental health issue that's going to be the person that's got the problem i think it's going to be inconsistent i think yeah. depression and anxiety will be destigmatized but there's yeah. going to be a I'm not 100% sure. You know, there was a brief period of destigmatization of depression in the 19th century. The history there is that people even romanticized it, especially amongst the upper crust. It was the disease right. of people that, as my mother used to put it, oh, they just think too much. They're yeah, too right, thought, yeah, right, right. You know, and it gets them down. Yeah, because that was, uh, that, uh, yeah, that was melancholia. Pre, that was all pre cable, pre yeah, cable, yeah. pre internet. So you, that yeah. was. Now it's the internet that depresses you. Let's let's yeah, talk, well. let's talk about creativity a little bit because we wanted to talk sure. about that as well. So, what are your thoughts on creativity and how do you use it in leadership? And and let's uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Well, I think the creativity comes from um, you know being open minded and open to people. Yeah. To to for me, I, I'm uh, my creativity stems a lot from simply being interested, being curious, mm -hmm. and then wanting to try new things. Gotcha. And 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 so creativity and, and also willingness to fail, to try things and fail. I have gotten so much traction out of just labeling certain things I was doing as a pilot test, because yeah. then everybody knows that you're you're open to failure, yeah, and to learn from it. And uh, one of, that was one of the early tricks when I first started managing teams of people wanted them to try something new mm -hmm. was to say, why don't we, it's just a pilot task. Let's give right. it a try. Yeah. I'm always willing to admit I'm wrong and, I'm, and, and let's leave uh, the door, a door, an exit strategy in case I'm as messed up as you think I am. Right. And, and, and this doesn't work, but just give me a certain amount of time for, for my proposal to work or not work. The and the willingness thing. when it didn't work to eat crow was very important too. I've had uh, people really get uh, um, very cooperative when they realized that I would fess up to being wrong. Yeah, the failure thing is very important. I, I'd say the best thing that my main mentor taught me about success and failure, right? Yeah. What, that I always like to pass on was, he said, Roger, there's a very interesting thing. We take the same actions to succeed that we do to fail. Yeah. we just only learn from the failures we yeah. really don't know what made a success a success we may want to take credit for it or yeah. we may want it but we really don't know the variable that makes it a success and, and a lot of times it's outside of us it's just you know right timing yeah. whatever. but but when you when we fail that's when we can really learn as, oh you know i shouldn't have done this with that person or i shouldn't have done this in that situation yeah. that's really well, certainly on the interpersonal side I think that's right and there's a certain alchemy to selling certain things too sure. but i would say in in my uh, in my field where we're 
come, trying to come up with different, say, enforcement strategies right. uh, or strategies for getting information out about things like scams and frauds? Because I had spent a lot of time sure. in the consumer protection business. Um, the one one lesson I would always take away from the successes was our successes were data driven. Right. We measured what we were doing. We were measured. We found measures for whether people were getting the message or not, or whether enforcement was working or not. Right. And and uh, the successes were always verified by the data. And if something works in one area, then trying it again in a closely related area is kind of learning from your success. Well, yeah, yeah that's right. Because you know, dealing with uh, people that have that have been scammed or or whatnot. Um, there tends to be so much shame around the fact that oh, scammed. No question about it. And, and the worst. What, and that's what plays to the benefit of the scammers. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the perfect example I had was with so-called romance scams, lonely heart scams. Trying to get people to admit they've been scammed by yeah. a dating agency or, or something like that. I mean, the humiliation is terrible. Yeah. And trying to explain to people that to me it's just a consumer um transaction we're trying to help other people we're trying yeah. to you know you can help others by getting the word out and we need to go after uh but some of these yeah that, that the, the 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 scammer is an expert on manipulating some of our key emotions greed yeah or key drives are greed right uh the, the the desire to get something for less than maximum effort right and ego and and fear of um, fear of embarrassment or humiliation and lonely heart scams are perfect. Yeah. Nobody wants to, anybody to know. Losing fifty thousand in an investment scheme is a lot less shameful than sending fifty thousand dollars to some guy in Nigeria yeah. who got you to believe that he was going to come to Sault Ste. Marie the, to be the love of your life, right? Four two nine scams, right? That's what they're called. Yeah, I mean all that and and people hide or uh, making people think they they're accomplices to a crime. There's a lot of scams out there where, uh, you know, you, you effect, in effect, laundered money for somebody, maybe unwittingly, but they, you also start to wonder if I call the cops, are they going to prosecute me too? Yeah, that's, uh, you, there's ones that are all like, um, you know, there's a warrant up for your arrest or, yeah. you know, it's like, no, there's not. <laughs> yeah, no, there's not. And they wouldn't be sending an email if there was. Yeah, exactly, right. Or, me, <laughs> and I, what I always tell people is I don't ever worry about money because I've got nine emails where I have nine princes who are supposed yeah. to wire me money at any given time. So that's my exactly. that's my little nest egg. I don't have to worry. I've got friends all over the world just waiting to send exactly. me the 50 million exactly. that belongs to me. It's on bank account. As somewhere. long as I give them some bank account information. Well, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, it couldn't be simpler. Well, what would you, what would you, thanks for, for, thanks for your time. And, and, and what would you want everybody to walk away from after listening to this episode? What would you want them to, to know? Never lose your capacity, never lose your thirst for learning, mm. to be open to new ideas, to be open to people. That's, that's number one, learn, baby, learn. And the second one is to, uh, is, is to be adaptable. You adapt or die. Some people say, you know, if you don't grow, you die. I'm not sure about that, but you definitely have to adapt, right. you know, you, and, and, and realize that what worked yesterday may not work today. Be open to change and adaptation okay. to the people around you. Well, that's great. Thanks you know? for coming. Thanks for oh, coming and on. have a good laugh every day. Yeah. Gotta have a good laugh every day. Yeah, well, thanks for day. coming on the show. I really appreciated it. Thanks Roger. Great talking to you.